0: Welcome to the show everybody. Real special episode getting a COVID-19 update. I am so happy to get to do this show. I don't watch the news. I don't keep up with things. I don't get I try not to get too swept up in politics. And I when I want to know about a subject, I'm able to reach out to the people that study it. 6 years of talking with scientists on this show and when a pandemic rolls around, I can contact people on the front lines, people who research infectious disease, to talk to them about this thing, to inform myself, and I get to share that with you guys. It is such a privilege and an honor. My guest today, Olamide Jarrett, is amazing. A Very impressive woman. She is a... Um, She has spent a lifetime, a career anyway, studying, researching HIV and AIDS, working with patients day in, day out, only taking a break to work on the Ebola outbreak, to go to the front lines of Ebola, and she's going to share with you today what has her nervous about COVID-19. This is someone who works with HIV and AIDS, and just took a break to work on Ebola. And COVID-19 has her pretty concerned, and I, I think that is pretty notable. I think that's worth paying attention to, no matter what your thoughts are on all this. That's worth hearing out why that is. So thanks for tuning in. By the way, if you've been following me on social media, because I have a little more time, I'm trying to carve out more time to prepare for future episodes. I have a whole backlog that are going to be released, but for future ones, I'm trying to put out there, um, open it up to you guys, get some questions ahead of time on things like, say, murder hornets and stuff like that before I launch into the interview so you can be more involved. You're going to hear that in this episode. Not only um, uh, uh, that, you'll hear what you probably like won't realize is I kind of mushed together a bunch of the questions and topics that seemed important to people when I put it out there on social media. But I even uh, I even asked specific some specific questions that folks asked, especially on Patreon. Um, and so that's something that I'm trying to add one. Um, That's an an additional cool new thing that YouTube is going to allow is that each episode I'll be able to read through the comments and be able to um, uh, kind of organize those, pay attention to what people are interested in and um, integrate that into future episodes. Um, uh, it, it just helps me to know a little more about what you guys want to know about helps create a little more of a community and, um, a lot of fun. So one of the many improvements that we've been making. And if you want to take a look on YouTube, you may have peeked before this episode is the first one in a new, there's a bunch of old ones recorded, but this one is the first one where we made some pretty drastic changes in both audio and video side of things and made some real improvements i'm the goal is is to create something that does not look like just another zoom call that looks like a really really professionally done product the limiter has been that i have a bunch of guests on all the time that aren't used to doing these sorts of things it's not like just Calling up my comedy buddies who already have a bunch of equipment and everything else. And I've been working hard on um, on figuring out workarounds and uh, and simple to complex things that we can do to put a bit more time in to creating a higher quality audio and video product. Getting you guys involved more. Hopefully researching more before these. Doing everything I can. To, uh to make the pod uh, this podcast the best it can be for you because it is um, my pleasure and honor uh to get to talk with guests like this so enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Joining me today is Associate Professor of Medicine and Infectious Disease at the University of Illinois, Chicago, Alameda Jarrett, is joining me. Alamade, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This is a very special COVID update show. Infectious disease is not a huge thing uh, that we talk a ton about on the podcast. Um, We we sometimes talk about kind of the evolution of how we evolved alongside viruses and some stuff like that, but it's certainly not something I find myself to be particularly knowledgeable or confident in my knowledge of. And I I had some amazing, fascinating conversations. In case of any new listeners, one of my favorites, Nina Pfefferman uh, was on the show back in March. Uh, and I knew enough to hunker down <laughs> and just try to listen to whatever CDC updates and um, and put off booking shows or anything like that until around June and get an update and focusing on mental health issues and things like that. In the meantime, some of the cool, interesting uh, takes on like psychology and marketing and all those things that also come along with a pandemic there's a lot more than just a disease that we have to factor into the situation the economics of it everything else and so i'm so excited to have um this update show and uh and you were recommended by nina
1: Yeah, and that's a tough act to follow. So we'll see. I'll do my best. Well, I
0: got some pretty good vibes about you already, (laughs) but I got Nina's like one of the best guests that I've ever uh, that I've ever had on. So, but yeah, you're going to be um, terrific. So, if you could give us here's some of the skeleton of the conversation that I'd like to at least include: one, a bit of history of who you are and what you research, um, because I, I know COVID-19 is a new thing. It's my understanding that you do a lot of like uh, HIV stuff usually, mm-hmm. uh, correct? And then um, and then I would like to maybe have us move into kind of generally what we've learned about COVID-19 from your perspective um, mm-hmm. o- o- over just the last three months or so. Um and just pretend I don't know a thing and you'll be accurate. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Um so a little bit about me is uh, again I'm no with the University of Illinois, Chicago and my interest has generally been around issues around HIV, STIs and women. Um so um the research I've done so far has been around those kind of issues, understanding the epidemiology, so understanding which means understanding uh what risk factors lead to women getting HIV or getting um, sex transmitted infections, looking at things like immune responses or um, the interaction between the vaginal microbiome, which is the vaginal bacteria, um, and the body and women getting um, sexual transmitted infections. Um, I took a little bit of a detour from that um, in 2015 during the Ebola epidemic. Well, actually, it's 2014, it's the beginning of that. So. During the West African Ebola um, epidemic that happened, um, a backstory for me is that I am first-generation American Sierra Leonean. So my Mm. parents are born and raised in Sierra Leone. I was born and raised here in the States. And Sierra Leone was one of the um, three major countries affected by the West African Ebola epidemic. Mm. And so when that happened, um, I felt like I needed to go and, and help. And so I went and volunteered there for about three weeks um, at an Ebola holding unit where we're actually screening people for Ebola. Um, so it was an effort to keep the hospital open mm-hmm. and it was actually done by, it's being run by King's College in London. So I went to go volunteer with that group and um, p- to keep the hospital open, anyone who came in with Ebola symptoms had to be tested for Ebola. And then if they were negative and they still were sick, then they keep coming to the hospital for regular care. And so we helped out with that. So then we were caring for a small number of people, some of whom who had Ebola and some of them who did not. Those who were positive got sent to a treatment facility from the hospital. And so I did that for three weeks. And after that, I came back. I'm like, no, it's still not enough. And at that time, a lot of vaccine research was taking off in the country. Um, in the vac- own-
0: Sorry, sorry, the vaccine what? Sorry, won- sorry,
1: the sorry vaccine I, research. I did talk a little bit fast. I apologize. I'll do that a little no, slower. No. But Oh, you're good. Um. So a lot of vaccine research around Ebola was happening in Liberia and also in Sierra Leone. And so I got Mm. the opportunity opportunity to work with the CDC in Sierra Leone on their um, vaccine trial. So it was called STRIVE, which was the Sierra Leone trial to introduce a vaccine against Ebola. Um, Scientists like to have these catchy phrases, but sometimes come up with very long names for research trials as, as a result. So I actually took a leave of absence from the university and worked on a, a clinical trial for an Ebola vaccine in Sierra Leone for about a year. Um, mm. Then came back to my, my my job at UIC in 2017, and I've been there since that time, um, trying to you know get other projects going, which is not so easy in this current funding environment, but um, still, my interest is still around HIV and STIs. Um, mm. So that's kind of my background and my career to date. Um,
0: uh- what um uh, i would i would love to hear about your your take if you don't mind sure. saying about the current um funding environment some of the some of the challenges that are that are faced for someone working on infectious diseases I mean, something this... that i would deem to be fairly <laughs> important
1: i mean it's just it's just getting i mean like you know there's only so many dollars to go around and the and yeah. the government decides what they want to allocate and the number um i mean I, I think it's increased back again with COVID. Um, there's a lot yeah. of money being poured into COVID-related research, um, but before this current uh, crisis, um, you know, you just had to have a better and better and better, like almost perfect, no holes, you know, in it proposals to get funded. Um, so it's it's getting harder for new research, new researchers um, and earlier stage investigators to get funding than in previous years. Um, mm. Going back to like, you know, during the economic crash of 2011, 2012, a lot of money was actually to NIH to kind of get that started. So there was a, more money in those years. And then probably since about, uh, since probably about 2015 moving forward, the funding has just gotten a little bit tighter. And, just hard, and because, you know, there's, only, there's, a, there's a certain pot of money and then lots of people who have research ideas and they're all competing for a piece of that pot. So when you have a lot of people who have all these ideas that they want to, you know, um, research and understand, and the pot is only so big, it just makes it, your grant has to be that much better every time um, to get access to those funding dollars. Hmm. It's just much more competitive than it, than it has been in the past. That hmm. being said, um, again, with this current COVID crisis, there's a lot of um, research dollars being poured into trying to understand COVID and come up with treatments and therapies and diagnostics as quickly as possible So there's been a huge push in that area. Um, That being said, there are definitely other things besides COVID that are still happening, and so that's so HIV
0: still exists,
1: (laughs) even though COVID. Yes, and I think this is is a hard balance because we're clearly having a a pandemic that needs to be addressed, but all the other things that are ongoing, you know, HIV, hepatitis, um, malaria, tuberculosis—they're all those haven't stopped. So anything that was a crisis and of urgency before COVID is still a crisis and urgency during COVID. And on top of all of that is COVID.
0: Yeah. Is there a little bit of a... (laughs) I I do wonder if rates of HIV transmission is potentially dropping as there's like people are quarantined. There's like less dating happening. People are... People are maybe taking more precautions, just like more broadly than than uh, than normal.
1: I would hope that was the case, but in terms of a, my own personal bubble and of a few people, um, I have patients who, you know, I do a lot of HIV care as part of what I do, and I still have my HIV patients who are sexually active and still coming in with STDs. Mm. So if I don't see gonorrhea chlamydia or syphilis dramatically slowing, maybe it will I mean we get, again we won't really know for another you know four or five six months when they start to look back and analyze the data to see if there was a drop, but just anecdotally, I still have patients are coming in with new gonorrhea and chlamydia infections, so
0: yeah i well <laughs> i i mean i just I just wonder because I was like like i i do um i i like to be barefoot Mm -hmm. um and and people uh, people are like you're barefoot during like a pandemic like at a park or whatever and i'm like i didn't know that the risk of being barefoot increased with a respiratory
1: yeah (laughs) Um, exactly it doesn't
0: uh, (laughs) and and but it it seems like so people are just kind of like hyper uh you know just Because people don't know the specific details, it seems like their disease avoidance response in psychology has just been primed a little more than normal. That would make me speculate that like maybe people would wear condoms a little more than usual but maybe some people are like well i wore a mask today so i can let the condom like like if i exercise maybe i'll have like a snickers bar or something that maybe i wouldn't normally st- spoil myself with i don't know if there's like that going on with the mask and condom situation i mean
1: i think there's a I and mean, we're gonna go talk about mask um i, mean, I would
0: love to talk about masks a i bit mean too.
1: so I think that who's taking the mask, I think that's a, a major divide. I mean, they talked about it in the media and I've seen it firsthand. Like there are a lot of people who are not taking the masking seriously at all. I am mm-hmm. um, someone, I don't have a car. So I get around on the bus and the train or with my own two feet. Um, mm-hmm. and, I have, and I have been blown away, even when the beginning, when it was really bad, when our hospitals were really filling up here in Chicago, and, like, you know, the numbers were just going up and up and up every day. And we had the stay-at-home order in place. And yet, with that, I would go on the bus and the train, and there would be people with no face coverings. Um, yeah. I don't know if part of the issue is that we keep using the word mask is the issue. Because I'm just oh, like, you've got a T-shirt in your house. Like, like I mean, like, yes, I mean, I have some masks. But some of them are very cute. Some with got the yeah. Chicago flag on it, et cetera, because... Why should you, you know, be in a pandemic and not be fashionable? but yeah. not everybody can afford necessarily paying for a mask or anything like that. but everybody Plus I feel like
0: a, I feel like you can make like dimples the new cleavage too you know with a <laughs> mask on like a little a little reveal. <laughs> you know there, there's ways to work with it that is all I'm saying.
1: Well I think the most I think that um, again we keep using the word mask and so people feel like they need to have a mask. Yeah. But the bigger issues is that need a face covering so if you have a t-shirt in your house you can cover your face so you know um mm-hmm. even people who are you know who may not have stable housing usually have more than one shirt so mm-hmm. if nothing else you could be switching out the shirt that you're not wearing using it to cover your face and and a lot of what I'm seeing is that people don't think that is that serious um, mm-hmm. because obviously with Majority of infectious diseases, except for the one that will actually kill the human race, most people survive it, right? So, mm-hmm. most infections are designed that most people survive it. Because if you have an infection where the death rate is 90%, then the infection itself, the virus, the bacteria, whatever, can't really propagate that far if you kill your host before you can get it infect the next person. Right. So, I don't know if that is the issue or there's, just, there's this new distrust of science. I mean there's always been some of a distress of science but there's a it has blown me away personally um as a scientist um and as a human being and as someone who you know rides public transportation with the rest of everybody else of seeing this sort of distress of science and this and the American idea of individual rights over yeah. group rights yeah. Going to a new level that I—I I mean, not that I'm so old, but you know, in my forty-plus years, I have never—I have never seen it to this extent, or maybe yeah. I just never appreciated it until now, the extent that it's gotten to. Because um, there's this idea that, like, well, I don't feel comfortable in a mask. I'm like, but the mask is not for your comfort. The mask is for the comfort and the protection of everyone around you. I don't wear my mask. For me, I'm wearing my mask for you because there is asymptomatic transmission or mm. we say, or pre-symptomatic transmission. So either you're never really, that's you're never sick at all. Or even before you start to get sick, you're still shedding the virus and transmitting it to people. And I don't, and people are just not trusting that message because the message is out there, but people are not trusting that that message is true. Yeah. Um, I remember there's a gentleman on the train and he was, he didn't have his mask on. He was talking on the phone and I didn't feel like he was really six feet away. So I just asked if he could move over one more seat. And then, and then his bilingual. And I'm like, and I, and I tried to cut it off in the past. I'm like, no, sir, I'm wearing my mask to protect you and everybody else and you don't have your mask on. So I just, you know, once you'd be closer to six feet away, you're not quite six feet and you're yeah. not wearing a mask and you're talking on your phone. So, And he goes like, well, a minute he goes, let me tell you. And I just like, oh, never mind. I mean, and let
0: me tell I has no idea like, you're an infectious disease. <laughs> yeah, especially.
1: but you know, on the on the train, I just look like another shytown uh, Town girl. It's not like I have right. my badge on or anything like that.
0: Yeah. Um, and
1: most people don't think I'm a doctor when they see me, anyway. Yeah. Um, right. And he start, started going on a conspiracy. Like there's a conspiracy and something and something about Fauci, and I'm just like, Ugh. I was oh, i just like, God. I just moved up and walked away and got my six feet by myself with my own two feet. Um uh,
0: uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm I, I'm trying to do my part in battling the many cognitive biases out there and the conspiracy theorists. Believe me, I'm I'm a comedian, so the comedy community is just ripe with, a conspiracy theorists because it's like somewhat bright people that don't have, like, a formal education and, like, the cognitive bias, you know, the the confirmation bias of being able to look into your own stuff and comedians are rewarded for, like, Mm -hmm. novel ideas and we tend to be a little toward the disagreeable side and questioning authority side of things. And so you have these, like, otherwise, like, somewhat admirable traits but, like, the wrong combination of them And, and you have yourself a conspiracy theorist which, like, it becomes like a real goes from like um being skeptical of 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 um you, you know some like uh, obviously there's corruption and government and things to question in society it goes from that to like what seems to me like a pretty severe mental illness um in in a hurry and it's it is a uh, it's pretty trouble I mean just the idea like the the Bill Gates vaccine thing is like one of the most that that someone will be on their phone like downloading all these programs to check like okay I'm gonna turn on my GPS I'm gonna go on here here you go phone here's every app here's all of my info yes log me into Facebook log me into Twitter so that I can see an article about how Bill Gates caused a global pandemic just so that you could think of some fake vaccine to inject me with a trip, a chip to track me. That's the elaborate thing that it's done to track me. (laughs) I'm going to like that article. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to like that article. Yes. Please send me more things like, yes, here's my email. So you can email me updates uh, on, on how Bill Gates is trying to track my information through, (laughs) through a vaccine. It's, the, the level of, I mean, I try to have, like, I try to not be, like, condescending toward people. I try to be understanding and empathetic. I think much of this is, like, a feeling of, like, helplessness and, like, anxiety. And, and you know, conscious creates these stories yeah. of, like, uh, you know, when you feel like things are out of your control, um, you create this story of of, like... You know, I I when I was a kid, I was at a carnival and I wanted the big stuffed animal and I threw the ball. And then when someone told me that the carnival guy actually had the things nailed to the all of life is like that. that. And like and, and that's like what people go to, I think, when they feel um, when they feel helpless. And then there's no there's no there's no lack of confirmation from like any social media or internet if you want to find whatever to validate your own beliefs
1: no there's definitely lots of confirmation bias in the in the media but it's just again as a physician it's just like but then you think all the physicians <laughs> that are telling you that are you know that are posting it and and saying that people are especially like, it's really bad like dying so you thought that New York City New York who like I'm sure they probably lost billions of dollars in the months that they were shut down yeah that that the governor of New York, rather than taking the billions of revenue that he normally is getting for this, for just from the New York City alone to yeah. make their state thrive, fake like this whole thing, brought in tractor trailers to put the bodies in because the yeah. morgues were full. Like, I guess it's, just, it's like there's always a level of conspiracy, like, you know, for HIV is a perfect example. Like, I have patients who are convinced that, you know, the treatment is really out there, and they're withholding it from us, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what I always say to that is that, you know, well, if that is true, I don't know about it. I only know this treatment. And mm-hmm. all the people in the NIH who are trying to find treatments don't know about it. So mm-hmm. if there is a boogeyman somewhere up, you know, in the highest levels of the echelon that's hiding it, it's hiding it from all of us. Yeah. And he has all those people locked up who are doing the research on this, Locked up in a vault, and none of us will ever know. So we can only operate with this information that we don't have. That vac- we don't have a cure, but we do have effective treatment. And so,
0: Olima, oh, oh, tell people about the ivory tower you're sitting in right now. <laughs> I imagine it's a mansion filled with. You, you pro- What do you have? How many guest houses you have over there? Five, six.
1: Uh, I have a little condo, and I don't have a car. I take the
0: bus. <laughs> and you take a bus. These are these are these elitist scientists, yeah. scientists out there. And I also like the idea that this is like, you know, people think like, well, scientist. It's not like, it's not like there's not most of science who is incredibly negatively affected. By all, it's not like there's not physicists that would love to be in the classroom right now, or or all of the like animal research studies that got shut down, or all of you, you know, or vacation
1: plans. Of... I had plans to go to
0: Paraguay next <laughs> yeah. week
1: to go and visit a very good friend who does research down there. That I mean, like I, yeah, you know, the money I save on a car, I I spend on going on to go to really cool places around the world, and that's not happening for the next at least for me i'm not going anywhere for the next year so um yeah so it's just hard to well, to see that
0: i mean people people don't see i i mean i don't I, when i say people I, I mean i think that um i think actually more than predicted uh early on people were like actually following like regulations and stuff so when i i, I don't mean to like generalize all of it's just you know, it's easy to see uh, um, some of these arguments from people and just like shake your head and get frustrated, but there is. I think people are tired. You, I Yeah, people are tired. But, but it's also, uh, speaking of vacations, I mean, one of the silliest things that I saw was like, in April, Carnival Cruise announced that they were like starting back up in September or whatever, yeah. and they had record sales. <laughs> Like, people are like, you know what I want to do as soon as I'm done with quarantine? I want to go sit in, like, a tiny little cabin, quarantine, and eat buffet food. I'm like, on, after watching the news and seeing that a ship got quarantined for months and people were starving and getting sick.
1: People are tired, I think. I think people are, yeah. qu- I mean, quarantine fatigue is real, and I and I get it, Um but unfortunately, the virus, I mean, so we can we can give up and get tired of it. But the virus is just like, uh, the virus is not done. So that's the problem.
0: It's, virus is pretty patient. Uh, it yeah, doesn't I really mean, care it's about our the calendar. Long, it's
1: playing the long game. And so <laughs> I totally get people tired and frustrated and want to move on. But, um, yeah.
0: Now, what about, do we know anything about... Um, you know, it was it was my sense um, early on when I had people like Nina, for example, on that it's like back in like early March, it was like we, you know, one of the big ideas, it, one of like the major um, things that we're quarantining for is to buy science time to learn more, to buy hospitals time to be better equipped to manage uh, affection infections that, um, that do come in. And, and so, and and so I am curious, what, what have we, um, what have we learned about the virus that maybe wasn't kind of common knowledge back in like early March? And and I, I hear people asking, you know, are there different mutations of this virus? Are there less and more virulent strains? I know certainly the evolution of viruses can work that way. It's my understanding mm-hmm. that, that this virus doesn't doesn't evolve that quickly.
1: So, um, I mean the simp- the the simple answer is uh, we still don't we still know very little about this virus. I mean, because mm. if you really think about it, it really burst into the world scene around January February. Um, in terms of really becoming this worldwide pandemic and people racing to figure out what was happening. So there's still, so that's only been like, you know, about six months max. So there's still a lot that we don't know. Um, And just to clarify a point that you made earlier, before I go into some of the things that we do kind of understand now, is that the reason we had everybody stay at home was to try to disrupt transmission. That was the reason. Um, So not so much to give us time to figure stuff out, which is important to do, um, but also to disrupt transmission because it was just right. too well, many I people that getting was infected the m- too fast. Certainly.
0: Um, I knew that was the main reason, but yeah. just, just like the, the kind of, um, you know, when, when, when talking with other people in the public, mm-hmm. that's just like something that people don't think about is mm-hmm. like the, the additional, like, we also just need time to sort out how to manage this yeah. better. So, when we do start figuring out like what 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 do we consider an essential worker, and then eventually like in an ideal world, I would imagine you go like, now can we expand what is considered uh, an essential worker, and then can we have like maybe small service industries for those essential workers start opening up rather than uh we're gonna open all the bars yeah <laughs> yeah so but
1: to review some of the things that we um well, reviews things that we do and don't understand um, is uh, transmission. So again, it became clear over time that there's definitely um, asymptomatic transmission or at least uh, pre-symptomatic transmission. So people who never have any discernible symptoms but come up with COVID or COVID positive um, or people who are um, sp- are shedding and spreading to other people before they start to have symptoms. And both of which are dangerous and because it's much harder to control an epidemic when people can transmit the infection when they're not sick. Um, mm. And this is in contrast to something like Ebola. Like, you know, until you were sick, until you had your first fever or aches or chills or whatever, even though the virus was in you, you were not making enough to start shedding and transmitting to others. Mm. So having this additional piece where people are shedding the virus when they're and infecting others at a significant rate, when they themselves are not having any symptoms, is something that we have really appreciated with this virus as a real concern and makes it a little bit more challenging to control the spread. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the other piece of this, that still you know, we, don't, we know very little about and we don't really understand what it means is, typically when you're infected and you get over the infection, now you're you know usually immune because part of the process of fighting the infection is making antibodies against the virus or bacteria, such that that virus or bacteria can no longer infect you again. And that's the basis of all of the vaccines that we take, is that we expose our body to a very controlled protein of the virus or the bacteria, we make antibodies to that, so that if we're actually exposed to the actual infection, we won't ever be sick again. We won't be sick with that particular virus or bacteria in the future. And again, typically when you're infected with something, um, you know, outside of COVID, you know, if you get, um, with there being some exception with a virus, like with a, with a particular strain of the rhinovirus, then usually if you're exposed to that specific rhinovirus strain, because there are, you know, hundreds of virus rhino strains out there and they're changing every day. But if you somehow got exposed to that exact same rhinovirus strain, then you, would, you won't get sick again when you're exposed to that exact same one. Um, the issue that we're having right now is that um, it seems like people who actually have had, infection with COVID, we know that they had the COVID infection. Some people are not developing antibodies, which is very unusual. So typically, if you can have an antibody test for any particular virus or infection, you should be able to detect those antibodies afterwards. And so we don't know what that means. Does that mean that some people can get sick and they don't develop antibodies? Does that mean they can get sick again? So that's something that we don't, that we, so something that we know and we don't know. So we do know that not everybody who gets sick with COVID develops antibodies afterwards. And we, we don't know what that means. We don't know, does that mean that if they get exposed again, will they get sick again? Um, you know, which is not great. Because <laughs> hopefully the idea is that at least the people who've gotten COVID, if they get exposed again, will not get sick again because if they get sick again, then that means they can transmit again to other people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, um, but we don't know, we don't know yet. We don't know enough yet, but that's something that we have observed. Um, try to think of all the. I'm oh, sorry, I'm trying to go through a list of all the different things that we know and we don't know because there are a lot.
0: Um, I mean, that's that's incredible. I mean, one of one of the like uh, clever things about this virus, not to anthropomorphize too much, but you know, if if um, if there's like socially distancing, comedy clubs and stuff opening up, which I'm just like shaking my head at for a number of reasons um but uh but you know if if someone was hacking up a lung next to me or drowning in their own lung fluid like right next to me my natural instinct would probably be to like create distance between myself and them, maybe ask them to cover their mouth, yes. probably, probably clean up the area pretty good that they were just coughing all over. And the reason why that would be kind of my intuitive feeling is because evolution has shaped my mind over time with these kind of heuristics that it stumbled upon for like sometimes avoiding disease and sometimes it was... In our, sometimes someone might sneeze or something like that and, and there isn't a threat and I'm overreacting to it and sometimes there's a threat that I can't perceive that I'm underreacting to but this is how evolution's just like placed its bet and and created the kind of this um, probabilistic pattern recognition um, framework that I'm ba- that's, that's then that's then using these emotions to make me drive me in a in a particular way and because because people are asymptomatic there's no there isn't that exactly. regular response that we are used to and and it it might be the case that that is the viruses that in a modern world filled with disinfectants and uh, incredible medical care and all of the incredible tools that us amazing human tool uh users have evolved to like get really good at creating these new technologies and everything viruses are going to have to evolve um new and uh, new and different strategies that we aren't prepared for those are the viruses that are going to probably take off and that's and that's what's fascinating about covid-19 to me
1: and then the other things that we have learned are well treatments <laughs> So we now know that hydroxychloroquine is not an effective <laughs> treatment for COVID um, and uh, potentially carries uh, more harm than benefit for certain individuals. Um, yeah. So that's something that, we, that we've now learned through m- multiple studies. Um, there is a, still a few, uh, at least I think one other study that's ongoing around um, hydroxychloroquine to see if it's effective in preventing Um, infection um, in healthcare workers. That's a HERO trial that's currently ongoing. Um, So that's the last question to answer. So we know it's not effective for treatment. Um, We know it's not effective for secondary prophylaxis. Secondary prophylaxis means I've been exposed, but I'm not sick yet. And so I'm going to take this drug to try to prevent myself from getting sick. Ah, So there was a major study that came out of Canada looking at that issue, and they didn't see any benefit so the last study that's going to answer the last question um, i i will be surprised if it will show a benefit but that's the beauty of science you, you don't know until you until you study it, um, is there's an ongoing trial where they're looking to see if taking it prophylactically so i know i don't think i've had any exposures but i'm at risk of being exposed does it prevent infections and so they're doing that study in some he- in healthcare workers um, and we'll see what that shows and that will be the the that's the final last category for hydroxychloroquine, um, I would be surprised if it would be effective in that group if it's not effective in treatment, and it's not effective in secondary prophylaxis, but it is possible. Um, so, and that's why we have science and that's why we have research. So mm-hmm. that's the last question, but definitely for treatment, is not effective for treatment, is not effective for secondary prophylaxis. Um, we do have another thing that's new and updated since March is that we do have... Um, a treatment that is of benefit with people with moderate to severe COVID um, called remdesivir. Um, it is a, a intravenous, so through your vein, um, antiviral uh, drug. So it's a drug that. So it's an antiviral drug. So it's a drug that inhibits um, COVID um, um, coronavirus, um, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, um, and. Sorry, we to have to say this a little bit slower. I apologize. I'll say this. Watch me have to edit this, um, but going um, to say this correctly. So, what this drug called remdesivir? What they found, which published in New England Journal of Medicine not too long ago, is that for people who needed supplemental oxygen. So that's kind of people with moderate disease. So for people who have moderate disease, that means that you're sick, and because it's it's a is a respiratory illness, so it's a lung disease. And so sometimes with severe lung disease, you need oxygen, and really bad, you need to be put on a ventilator to help you breathe. So what the study found is that people who need oxygen, so, they, so the, the disease is so has gotten bad enough that you now need oxygen, but you don't need to be on a ventilator yet, that people who got this drug remdesivir um, got better faster than if they didn't get remdesivir. So what they found is that people who just got the regular standard of care, which is like, you know, giving you um, oxygen, you know, giving you, you know, Tylenol, if you're having a fever, you know, just watching your vitals and making sure, doing all that normal stuff. Um, on average, those people were sick in the hospital for just over two weeks, about 15 days. And those who got remdesivir were only in the hospital for 11 days. Mm. So it, made, it decreased hospitalization by about four days, which is significant. Um, but they only found that benefit in people with moderate illness. So it's not a treatment for somebody with mild disease, um, and it's not a treatment for somebody who's so sick. Once they've been on the ventilator for, you know, a week, the desicbure doesn't have any benefit, because sort of the sort of the horse is out out of the barn at that point. So in this mm-hmm. middle ground where the horse isn't out of the barn yet completely, but um, but you're but you're but you're sick enough that you need some oxygen, so things are starting to. Start, things are starting to turn bad, but not so bad that you know you've now ventilated for days on end. Um, in that middle ground right there, remdesivir seems to have a benefit in patients and decreases the the length that they're sick in the hospital. So we do have one treatment um, so far for uh for certain people who have who have COVID.
0: I I'm curious. Um... Do we know anything? And I I imagine this would be like fairly speculative, or maybe there's some animal research. uh, But do we know anything that shows um, any kind of long term? So you you know, someone goes into the hospital, Mm -hmm. they don't die, they survive, Mm -hmm. terrific. Mm -hmm. They get out two weeks later. Mm -hmm. Is, Is there any evidence that there's any like significant like permanent like lung damage or anything like that, that someone is going to potentially be living with for the rest of their life? No, there's this?
1: no data about that right now, but I'm sure that's going to be one of the, I'm sure that's one of the many trials that are ongoing and research that's ongoing right now. Um, mm. Again, the, the, what we know about uh, COVID is like, could fit on the thimble right. compared to what we don't know about this disease. So right. um, there's, still, there's still tremendous stuff that we don't know. I think a year from now, Kind of a lot of these questions that you're asking about long term lung damage, etc. We'll have those answers. But Mm. now we're still in the process where we're trying to collect and try to get those answers. Mm. Um, So I think probably by the fall, we'll have some more data. And definitely by next year, a lot of these questions, I think, will be answered.
0: Do you kind of. um, How much do you follow? I I don't uh, I don't really watch the news much might seem a little ignorant but it's a mental health thing <laughs> <I don't>, look, <laughs> For, I've,
1: I've learned that i even myself i've had to pull back on some of the news reporting lately so
0: yeah um and uh, i i love talk i i mean i'm in a very privileged position of getting to talk with people that are actually experts in the things that i want to know about and um and so i i have uh access to a pretty cool source of uh information uh, and getting to find people in um academia but the The question that I was wondering is, um, are are there things like are are there things that we've learned globally about what other countries are doing really well or really poorly that um, that that is something that we should be thinking about in terms of policies that we can do to manage this better in terms of what we might need to be prepared for now that there's like rallies taking place and people are out at beaches, there's protests happening. It seems like protesters are, are using a lot of masks and um, and everything, but as, as there's people um, starting to uh, become less isolated and starting to intermingle more, is there are there countries that have tried to go the herd immunity route and we've learned things from that are there countries that that just like really knocked it out of the park and were able to pretty much get rid of transmission altogether?
1: um so i think a couple of countries i think the one we think most about has been i believe is it was in sweden is it switzerland i think it's sweden who's tried the herd immunity strategy mm-hmm. um and i don't think that's been working out so well for them i think they actually have the highest cases in Europe now, I believe, as compared to Italy and other countries that have did lockdown to try to really get the transmission under control. Um, and I guess, and I think it's a problem trying to, and the the problem with the idea of the herd immunity route is the, yes, for the people who get COVID and just feel like crap for a week, you know, yeah, you felt like crap for a week. People who lose their lives because of it. I think they probably don't really appreciate the herd immunity route of, mm. of infectious diseases. Um, right. Eventually, we will get to a herd immunity status, no matter you know whether we get the vaccine or not. Um, eventually, enough people will get infected, and we will, by de facto, have herd immunity. And um, that's the mm. way um, a lot of these viruses uh, work. Um, but sorry, I'm trying to think of the point I was going to make before that. apologize.
0: Well, because there's a, like like where i'm at right now there's a oh, sorry. sorry i do remember the next
1: yeah. point so yeah. the other point is that the one thing that is clear that that has been on the media um and that you know all the science uh, experts have talked about is testing so the one mm. effective strategy mm-hmm. is testing so the most effective way is to just have mass testing so if you know who's infected and you can rapidly test and rapidly get an answer to see who's infected then it makes it easier to open up the country because so mm-hmm. you know if you open if you open things back up but you're constantly you're able to constantly test people all the time and anyone who comes up positive they get isolated before they you know you isolate them and you ice and you quarantine their exposures you know for 2 weeks and they, you, you know, and after two weeks, you let them back in, you know, then the economy can keep moving and flowing. And that was South mm. Korea's strategy, which was really effective for them. Um, but again, to, a perfect marker about how infectious this virus is. So it's got an R0 about 2.2, which means that for every one person that's infected, they can infect two more people. Mm. So then those two people can infect two more people. And you see how very quickly... This is very exponential
0: infectious. growth yes yes and i i wish my social media following uh, <laughs> <go like laughs> went up
1: um but a perfect example about the problems with how infectious this is is um and actually it can go beyond just the two people so south korea you know was a model that everyone put in the media and they started to open up their country and there was some young gentleman who apparently was symptomatic so i mean she's probably had tons of viral load and he just needed to get his club on. And so he went to a club, even though he knows he wasn't supposed to. And you know, the club was packed full of, you know, South Koreans, young South Koreans enjoying and living life. And I believe that one person infected over a hundred people. So that one person caused a a mini outbreak of over a hundred people. And that now the South Korean government had to go and check all those people and put them in isolation and in isolation, because isolation when you're sick, but in quarantine, etc., to get this back under control. Um, Whew.
0: I mean, sometimes you just gotta dance, though. You <laughs> <laughs> dance in <your> house. <laughs> dancing in your house. That is what Pandora is for. That's that's where I should be doing all of my dancing anyway, outside of the the, the public's eye. <laughs> um,
1: so so yeah, so I mean, that's a perfect example of um, you know they had a great strategy, but. Again, the strategy is only as good as the people who adhere to the policies that you put in place.
0: Do we have a sense of weather, being outdoors, being indoors, um how uh, do, do we have a better sense of how long something's lasting on a given surface? um what what are what are some of the conditions for the viral load before it becomes active in a given person? who? Do we have a better idea?
1: I'll let the, you take the those. last question. I don't think so. I'm not aware of the research if this has been published. I, I apologize. I'm not aware of that last question. We do know because um, it is a droplet exposure, so it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is deactivated pretty quickly by sunlight. We do know that by UV light, which is why they, you've seen hospitals do you know try to preserve PPE by putting them under UV light to reuse them that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that, so for that reason, for the UV light, because they're droplets. Yes, it's safer to be outside than indoor. So outdoor mm. activities are definitely infinitely safer than indoor activities. Um, so, you know, going outside and having a socially distant picnic with your friends where everyone's sitting, you know, six feet or more apart and enjoying each other's company that way is inherently more safe than having a dinner party in your house where everyone's sitting six feet apart. Mm.
0: Um,
1: so, yes, outdoor is safer than indoor. Um, you know, distancing is the key. So, like... You know, other thing people feel like, look, well, if I have my mask, which I feel like has been happening, I can get in your face. I'm like, no, that just means you get to be within four to three to four feet of me as opposed to being staying six feet back.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: I would still prefer six feet back. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, so definitely so distancing is the biggest key because droplets, droplets do aerosolize, but then fall. So, you know, so now that it's getting summertime and it's humid and being outdoors, I think. There's going to be less transmission than the winter time because in the winter time, when the air is really dry and cold, droplets can transmit from much further. Mm. We do say six feet, but it's probably possible. Probably, you know, in November, that it might be more like you know, it might depending if the air conditions are just right that the virus can transmit you know further when the air is really dry to maybe more like seven feet. But six feet, most people feel like you know, by three or four feet, you know, droplets that spew out of your mouth when you're talking kind of fall to the ground. And then you want to kind of give a little bit couple extra feet beyond that and that's where you know the general idea that six feet if you're six feet apart from somebody any droplets are spewing out of your mouth unless you're really like you know an operatic singer that's just really projecting you know even if you're a loud talker you know before you get to six feet the droplets will fall and hit the ground and not infect that other person Mm. um in terms of things that we understand about surfaces I this wish is people,
0: I, I can't i can't uh, do opera either anymore no. this is just nothing well, but opera, <laughs> but just make sure people are you're really just such far a buzzkill.
1: You. <laughs> you can do opera just make sure people are very far right. from you but the perfect example was um but the perfect example of this was um that church i forgot where that church was but they had um it was like around i think late march early april that they tried to have a choir practice and they tried to be they tried they they did everything that was being published about being socially responsible Everybody was six feet apart, I uh-huh. believe. I don't know if they were six feet apart, but they had, I think they were six feet apart but not wearing a mask. I, mean, I apologize, now I'm trying to remember exactly the details. But they try to do social distancing and do everything right. But again, when you're singing, you're projecting. And one person was sick and then ended up infecting like about, you know, 30 or 40, you know, 30 other members of their choir, but by the time the evening was over. Mm. So again, you know, so, I think the other thing that is important to try to do as much as possible is just to limit your interaction still. Um, so, as much as possible, as you just, you know, yes, we're social creatures and that's important. But, you know, what they've been a- advocating is kind of having a, a limited circle. So, like having an established circle of friends and family that you interact with. And that's your own little personal COVID bubble.
0: Mm-hmm. So that
1: you can get the social interaction that you like, which is important to our mental health, you know. Because we are social, social creatures, but to limit your exposure to to unknowns, mm. so that as opposed to going, you know, um, to uh, a club, having a socially distant dance party in your house with you know five friends that you trust is the safer mm. option between those two. Um.
0: I, I have, I have, I, I'm going to, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to. Uh, i i don't know I, I'm gonna focus on me search what what do I have to do mm-hmm. to be able to stroke this brand new quarantine beard of mine I've never had a beard before ah. uh, is it so i i mean i'm I'm safe I'm hunkered down i follow the guidelines mm-hmm. uh wash you know
1: your
0: hands. I w- wash my is hands this, and i'm I'm good
1: wash your hands for 20 seconds is the most effective thing so again okay. like you know I have you know I, I have friends who are like spraying down their groceries and doing all this stuff and like quarantining their belongings. And the, again, this is a respiratory illness. Mm-hmm. So it's not really getting through you through breaking your skin. It's getting right. in through through your eyes, through, so your eyes, your nose and your mouth. That is how this is being transmitted. So a keeping your hands away from your face as much as possible is key. If you really want to give your beard a good stroke, then you need to do twenty seconds of hand washing and proper hand washing. So you know, you gotta do this to clean your fingertips, this your thumbs, the backs of your hands, here, and you do and your and your wrists and do that for twenty seconds. So I sing happy birthday, the go through that twice to get my twenty seconds yeah. in. And then knock yourself out and 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 and, uh, and touch your beard as much as you like.
0: what if what if I want to i I'm a really I, I'm a world class hand fluter. <laughs> um, I okay, I just got out of the shower. I just cleaned up every, I think my you know I'm pretty safe, but I'm literally putting my hands in my mouth and breathing. that's a that's a I mean that seems like just- a foolish thing. To, to if you're in your
1: house by yourself and you wash your hands for 20 seconds, uh, really yeah. effectively, again making sure you get this cleaning under your fingernails and keeping your fingernails short and cleaning underneath your fingernails and doing that for a good 20 seconds okay. with soap and water, that's enough to wash the virus off your hands. So, like yeah. for me, I, I when I buy my groceries, I come home, I don't spray anything off. I put my groceries right in the fridge and in the sink before I, and you do the things that you're supposed to do anyway. I wash my hands before I cook. I wash my hands before I eat. As long as you're doing, and I wash my hands the minute I come in the front door. Why? Because I take the bus and the train to work and people are gross on the bus and the train. Before COVID, it's it's improved a little bit during COVID. So the first thing I do is I come home, I take off my coat if I'm wearing a coat and I wash my hands. Then I take off my mask, hang that up and I wash my hands again. I, wa- I do wipe down my phone, so I do have like wipes and wipe down my phone because you know, you're touching the phone when you're out on the bus and the train, so I do wipe my phone down once I come to the house um, and let that dry off. And then I live my life in my apartment like I normally live my life in my apartment. I didn't do anything extra. I am old school. I don't wear my in- outdoor clothes indoors, but that's before COVID. It's just how I was raised, so... I don't like.
0: To, really. I
1: don't like. No. I don't. What, what, do you, I have, what do you
0: get into? Some PJs? What's the indoor I just situation. have.
1: I have sweats or. I just have sweats or things that I wear indoors. I don't, I don't. I don't. I don't mix the two. That's just. that's nothing to do with COVID. That's just, Yeah. The idea is I, that when you like go outside, that. there's you no know, dust and dirt and whatever just crap sure. outside, and I don't want to, you know, bring that around. So when I come home, I take off my clothes, my outdoor clothes, hang them up. And then I wear indoor clothes mm-hmm. and that's right. so, I mean, like, but that's I'm just,
0: into that. Yeah. I, 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 mean, I, I used to, most of my career was flying around every, and whenever I got to a new place, first thing I do, uh, get to a hotel room, take off all of those clothes. Those go in a corner somewhere. Yeah. If I could afford it, I would have lit them on fire and never, t- <laughs> because I think airplanes are gross. Um, but, uh, and and I don't touch those again until they go in like a special garbage bag and that's how they get back home to, I like, I like your idea of, I I don't want to turn the world into, uh, unnecessary germaphobes, but, but I, for myself, I like the indoor outdoor outfit. I might be implementing that into my life. Um, is there any research showing, um, uh, you know, that's come out in the, in a few months showing a little more specifically about who is the most, um, susceptible. Cause at first it was just like old people with poor immune systems are the old, and then they're like, well, this is actually, it turns out that lots of, uh, lots of people are able to get this and, and, um, and there's younger people dying from it. And then there's people that are like, it's obesity is a factor. Is there any, no. I mean, so there are yeah. two
1: issues. So everyone's at high risk of getting COVID. So mm-hmm. there's no, like, you know, I think when, when the outbreak first happened, there was a lot of miscommunication, and misinformation that certain groups were immune to it. Um, I think in particular, the African-American community got that uh, very wrong message because mm-hmm. when the outbreak was spreading globally before it really hit the U.S., and even up till now, now it's starting to take off, a lot of African countries were fe- seeing little to no cases. But I think the reason that African countries were seeing little to no cases was because um, people don't travel to Africa, the African continent. They don't travel to most African countries the way they travel to New York, to mm-hmm. Chicago, to California, to Frankfurt, to London. They don't see the same high volume of travel. I think that's what, that's what that was, not because there's anything special genetically about people who live on that continent in terms of their risk of getting COVID. Mm-hmm. So... Everyone is equally susceptible under the sun. If you're a human being, you're in high susceptibility of getting COVID. All the data that we have points to that. We don't, there's no special groups who seem to be immune. Maybe, they'll, maybe we'll identify that later on, but right now, if you're a human being and you, and you walk on two legs, and if you don't walk on two legs, if you're a human being, you're high susceptible to this infection. That is different from saying who dies or has a bad outcome from this infection. Mm-hmm. So everyone is susceptible but there are people who tend to do worse with this infection. So some things are obvious, people with underlying lung diseases. So there are definitely people who have like asthma, who were otherwise healthy, who had poor outcomes with COVID. Um, and so that, like, I, remember there was a, I remember reading a, a really poignant story of an of a ICU nurse in New York who was in his 40s, otherwise healthy, looked like a strapping guy, but had asthma, well-controlled asthma, but had asthma. And he ended up dying from COVID. So people with underlying lung diseases are definitely more susceptible. People who are older, so we say over the age, we said over the age of 65, I think they're moving it down to 60 a little bit, are at increased risk. Just because as we get older, you know, just the parts start to wear down over time. Um, so you know, our ability to fight off infections isn't as strong at age 65 as it was at age, you know, 25. Um, if there are people who have been, you know, have any damage from lungs from previous pneumonia and stuff like that, those kind of things can also, you know, wear away at your body as you get older. So people who are elderly um, are increased risk. Um, and then we think that people who are immune compromised are increased risk. Why? Because your immune system isn't working perfectly. Which, so again, those things make sense. Um, so far, it does look like in contrast to other things like influenza, where obviously you see a high death rate in the very young and the very old overall, people who are younger are not as severely affected. That doesn't mean that a young person can't die from COVID, but overall, in terms of the numbers, so that means that you know, um, and I don't know the exact percentages, I'm just giving you relative percentages, so don't take these as exact numbers, but that's it's saying that you know, of a hundred people, elderly people over 60 who get COVID who get the disease, maybe like you know. 20 or 30 may die. As opposed to of 100 young people, like children who get the disease, maybe only one or two will die. So it doesn't mean that people across the age spectrum could potentially die from COVID, depending on what else is going on in their body and their immune system, but your chances of dying are much higher or having a poor outcome are much higher, um, like need to be ventilated for a prolonged period of time, et cetera, are much higher if you're older. Mm. If you have underlying lung disease or if you're immune-compromised, if you're obese, um, and the obesity part is off, is probably somewhat related to the lung, dis- lung disease issues. People who are obese, especially if they have a lot of neck obesity, tend to have things like sleep apnea, which is mm. already so. Which all people who have sleep apnea already have breathing issues, especially when they're sleeping. They're harder to ventilate. So people who have a lot of obesity on their chest. So not like so it's not obesity if you're hippie. It's mm. obesity where the obesity is here. Because if you're having a bad lung disease where you're having a hard time breathing, and then I put essentially like a tire on your chest, which is not, I don't mean that to be, you know, offensive, but a lot of extra weight on your chest on top of it.
0: I was going to say telephone books, and then yes. I remembered that's not a thing that yeah. exists anymore. Yeah, so I'm trying to think
1: of something. So, I mean, like, you know, no one has as much weight as a tire on their chest, but just yeah. figuratively speaking. But like some, like a, that much extra weight. Sure. So your lung is already struggling to expand and breathe and work because of this infection that's in there. And then you just add extra weight on top of it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just that much harder for your lungs to work and to ventilate. So mm-hmm. I think that's where you're seeing the overweight issue coming in. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so there's certain conditions that if you have them and you get COVID, your risk of having either dying or just getting really severely sick where you need to be ventilated, et cetera, goes up. Mm. That being said, there are people who, they have been, you hear the stories of the 90-year-old who survived COVID and they went back to their their nursing home, no problem. And you have stories of the three-year-old who had no underlying health conditions, but Died. Mm -hmm. So again, odds are odds. Odds are risk. That doesn't tell you what's going to happen to you. You only know what's going to happen to you if you go through it. Mm -hmm. So that's why I feel like everyone should take that stance that I'm going to assume that something bad is going to happen if I get it. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'm going to do my best to make sure that I don't get it. Mm -hmm. And that's the attitude that I take in my life in terms of my safety. Because maybe I'll get it, I just feel like crap for a couple of days and move on. Or maybe I'll get it, and I'll be the story of the doctor from UIC who end up die- who's the latest person or that hospital who died from COVID. Mm-hmm. I don't know, and I don't want to know.
0: <laughs> right. And I don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, what What do you say to you know? I still hear people asking or saying, "Isn't this like the flu?" Or this is like there's a lot of like there's a lot of TV doctors that put. The word doctor in front of their first name—that means that they're very, that they're experts, but also very personable. And, and and then because they've like given relationship advice in the past, they now fancy themselves virologists and uh, and try to claim that this is like no worse than the flu or whatever, which is, I mean, I mean, one that's neglecting the fact that we have a flu shot. Yes, um. and we have a flu
1: shot for a specific reason. Yeah. Um, I always tell my patients when I'm trying to convince them to get their flu shot. I'm like, if all the flu did, which has made you feel like crap for a couple of days, we wouldn't bother to make a vaccine. Because doctors mm-hmm. aren't nice. If you just feel like crap for a few days, like, just feel like crap for a few days and, and then go back to work.
0: Yeah, if that's why back- there's no <laughs> cold department. That's I'm exactly. always like, why aren't we getting rid of the cold? That's what I
1: want. Yeah, that's why <laughs> but it's just that's, not a big
0: enough priority.
1: We don't have a rhinovirus vaccine because... 90, like, I don't know the exact numbers, but the vast majority of people do not die from the rhinovirus. So if it's just that you felt like crap for a few days, we're just not that nice as doctors and researchers. We just let you ride that out and move on. It's that it kills people. <laughs> That's why we developed the flu vaccine because yeah. we, it is associated with death and mortality that is prevented or at least you know, ameliorated when you get that vaccine. Mm-hmm. And on top of it, we do have an oral treatment it's not perfect, also Tamavir, that if you take it within the first couple of days, you're, you're not, your severity of your flu is not as severe and you're sick for a lot shorter. Mm-hmm. So we have developed strategies to deal with the flu because we recognize the flu is bad. So mm-hmm. to compare flu numbers to COVID and flu numbers for a infection that we have a vaccine for, some years the vaccine is better than others, this year wasn't so great, um, and we don't—we're not going to have accurate flu numbers this year because after a while, any like, anyone who presented with a flu-like illness, we just assume you had COVID. Um, mm. So those numbers are going to be mixed up for this year. Um, but um, sorry, I lost my train of thought again. I apologize. Uh...
0: Difference between COVID and the oh, flu. Oh
1: yes, I apologize. So yes, but That's COVID okay. definitely, from all the data we have so far, is way more infectious than the flu, and it's killing a lot of people. So yeah, you mm. can't compare at all at all mm-hmm. so the it's a false equivalency um and i and i really would like people to stop that
0: <laughs> i know me too um, well so, i'm yeah. doing what little bit i can to, to try to correct some of people's logic I mean, here the and there best but... example,
1: when this all started when it's when the outbreak was really like flaring up in the late february early march and um i never turned to one of my colleagues and saying yeah, this is way scarier than Ebola. He's just like, really? Wow. Like, cause, cause I was like, yeah. Um, I wasn't that scared when I went to Sierra Leone during the Ebola epidemic because it, it was transmitted through the mucosa and through breaks in skin. Mm. So as I could get this close to you and I'm not getting Ebola. yeah. So I could still go, you know, as long as I'm not, as long as I'm washing my, as long as I was washing my hands the minute I came home, I took off all my clothes, took a shower, you know, when I was yeah. in Sterling took off all my clothes, took a shower, poof, I felt like I was safe and home free.
0: Just don't go skateboarding and you're <laughs> fine with Ebola as long as you're not covered in scrapes and stuff like that, yeah. essentially.
1: And not, and, and not touching and interacting. So long as you didn't right. touch anybody, you were safe. With COVID, it doesn't matter if I'm not touching you. If you're in my space and you're breathing that virus and I breathe that in... I'm getting infected.
0: Yeah. Well, um, oh shoot. Now I forgot what I, Oh, Oh, this, this is what, uh, as we were talking about the cold and everything in the, uh, you know, once winter comes around again and people start getting the sniffles, how is that going to exacerbate the situation? Once, once people are sneezing and germy otherwise, and, and, Throw a little COVID in that mix.
1: I mean, all the experts that have been looking at this, and this is probably a place where D- that Nina probably has tons of great numbers for you, um, is that we expecting a second wave this fall? Mm-hmm. Because a people will be more indoors, and what, we, and we know very clearly that b indoors, people are in closer proximity, so it's easier spread. Um, we know again, as I said earlier, that when it's when the air is cold and dry, droplets. Tr- travel further. So, you know, again, like, you know, what is nine degrees with 100% humidity, and I cough, the droplets probably may only maybe make it a a foot or two before they fall because Mm -hmm. of the humidity brings those droplets down to the ground with gravity pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. When the air is cold and dry, those droplets can travel much further. So Mm -hmm. between that, the fact that we'll be in more close proximity again, we don't really know yet about it, the interaction with other with other viral infections. Like we do know that, like with this with this first outbreak and this first wave, that people were having both flu and coronavirus together. Um, I don't think we have enough data to, to yet, and I'm not sure if anyone's published any studies. And they have. I apologize if it's out there because I'm not a, I'm not aware of the data about if flu plus SARS together is much worse than either one separately. My default answer would be yes, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know the exact data about that. Um, so, again, when the fall comes, there's gonna be, the flu is coming back. The flu is not going to take hibernate because SARS is going to be with us in the fall. All the other things, adenovirus, all the other viral retro infections that come out in the fall, in the winter, will be coming back out again as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think um, some people are optimistic. Um, I unfortunately am taking more, the more pessimistic route. Is that I think we're going to see a big upsurge in cases uh, this fall and winter.
0: Um, well, okay. So you study AIDS. It's my understanding. Correct okay. me when I'm wrong, not if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, but that um, that you know, the AIDS thirty years ago is is a whole lot different than AIDS today and there's a lot of there's there's tons of different the way in which viruses mutate the way in which once you start um getting um you know public policy people are wearing more condoms there's more awareness blah blah the the kind of less virulent strains probably no
1: no 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 is that we have better treatment no sorry that's it (laughs) yeah HIV looks dramatically different because we have way better treatment that's what because we have treatment
0: that's all. There's. It's not that le- like less virulent strains are the no, ones that. No, 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 that...
1: no, no, Really? No. Okay. Well, we thanks have, for. We have amazing treatments for it now. We have things that are easy to take. Back in the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, um, a we first didn't have anything. Then we only had AZT, mm-hmm. and then when we had these other class of drugs called protease inhibitors, there were these drugs that caused horrible nausea and vomiting, and at one point certain HIV patients had to take up to like 16, 20 mm-hmm. pills a day. Which, I mean, if I had to take 16, 12 pills a day, I would just say, write my obituary and say, call it. I can't take that many pills a day. So now we have very strong, potent therapies where we have three drugs combined into one tiny, cute little pill that people can take and move on with their life. Mm-hmm. We also have drugs that people can take to prevent them from getting HIV called PrEP. So we mm-hmm. have now a nice, cute little blue pill that people can take every day if they're at high risk for getting HIV, so people who are having multiple partners sex, um, and protecting sex and at higher risk of getting HIV because of that, those behaviors, if they take that one little blue pill a day, the risk of getting HIV from someone who's HIV infected and not using condoms and out there is, you know, extremely low. So mm-hmm. we have great treatments now. To We now have a great little pill to prevent um, HIV transmission in, in people who are high risk. And we have got a great little pill that prevents, um, that, that controls people, that controls, um, pe- controls the viral load of people with HIV and suppresses it. And we now know that if you have HIV and you're taking your medications every day, the risk of you transmitting your HIV to somebody else is like practically zero. And we just really say zero. But I always tell people 0.00000000000000, a bunch of zeros, and maybe there's a one at the end of that. Mm -hmm. But so we now know and understand, which we did not before, that anybody who has HIV should be put on treatment right away. So 30 years ago, A, because the treatment sucked and had horrible side effects, we waited till your immune system got bad enough before we started you on treatment. Mm -hmm. Now, A, because as best as we can tell, the sooner we start you on treatment, the better you do long-term personally. But also, the minute we start you on treatment and make your viral load become undetectable, you can't transmit to anybody else. So our thinking around HIV has changed. The effectiveness of therapy, the convenience of therapy has changed. And that is the biggest reason why we've seen dramatic change in HIV in this country.
0: I see. So the HIV today in a vial is the same hiv like no basically. i mean there are
1: mutations etc that can yeah. happen over time but not there's not been there's not been any substantial like that is less virulent than before mm. no no that's okay not
0: true. so so there's so if if we if if we create um potentially with covid if if we do create a vaccine by the time the vaccine's available in a year or whatever, it it would it's it, this isn't this isn't like some virus that's just going to evolve that it, or, you don't know.
1: It, and this is yeah. one thing we don't know. You so far it looks like so far the strains are fairly stable. Mm-hmm. And we're we're keeping and every single scientist out there and doctors crossing their fingers and their toes and their tongue and anything else they can cross on their bodies. And hoping that it stays that way, mm-hmm. um, but if there's some major like, shift in the virus and it some major mutation and it shifts, and then and that mutated virus then spreads as just as infectious as, as this current strain that's circulating, and that mutated strain is the vaccine that we hopefully God willing come up with is not effective against it. We're mm-hmm. we're in deep doo doo again. Yeah. again we're crossing our fingers and toes and everything else and pray that that does not happen but if the example of this though they didn't have a vaccine a long time ago but the flu of 19 uh, flu, the Spanish flu of 1918 so there was a first major wave of this one strain and then and, then, and that kind of went through and, and you know, wiped things out wiped, you know, killed some people and other people you know a lot, most people survived um, some people died and then it kind of t- tampered down a little bit. And then this second wave happened. The virus mutated. And the second wave, the virus that mutated, was way more lethal than the first one that rolled around. Mm-hmm. So it was that second wave, the, the, you know, the 20 million people that you hear about that died from you know, the Spanish flu of 1918, most of those people died in the second wave, not that first wave.
0: Mm.
1: So mm. it mutated, and it mutated to something that was way uglier than the first time around. Again, and there's no way for us to predict and control that. That's where Mother Nature has her full reign. And all we can do is try to defend ourselves as best as possible.
0: It's amazing that during a pandemic, all these there's like a bunch of religious people turning to science and a bunch of scientists praying. <laughs> <laughs> We're throwing everything we can at this thing. Well, uh,
1: I'm, a, I'm a scientist who is religious. So yeah. I, believe in, I believe that in both.
0: Yeah, yeah, perfect. Uh, I, all bases covered. Um, last little thing. Sorry to keep you a little extra. No, no uh, problem. Th- this is for having a fantastic conversation. Um, and this is long overdue for me. So, I'm in the comedy community. I see what comedians are... Tw- there's, there's comedians getting out there, flying to go to do gigs at socially distanced comedy clubs and stuff. I've been a hair outspoken uh, against it. I think that there's a lot of incentives for, say, a comedy club owner or a comedian to want to be on stage. I don't know that there's a lot of incentive for an audience to risk their life to go in to sit in a laughter is contagious anyway and spread up. I've performed in socially distanced, comedy clubs before COVID. It doesn't work well <laughs> when 20 people show up and they're spread out all over the place. Laughter needs to be, you, you need yeah. the intimacy. You need to be people sho- packed in shoulder to shoulder um, for it to really work. So I also think that a socially distanced comedy club Makes comedy look worse than it is, and no one's like, "Well, there wasn't. I wasn't getting the same subconscious cues I normally would." No one's gonna think that. They're just gonna go, "That comedian wasn't funny." That's what people are going to think. So there's lots of reasons outside of just not wanting people to be sick, but, um, but but clubs are some clubs that are trying to do it. Are tables six feet apart? Strangers aren't being set next to each other, so you're already going from 35 percent capacity to 20, 15 yeah. percent whatever. And then, um, you know, staff is wearing masks. They're taking people's temperatures on the way in the door what a great this is all to hear like yeah. a, a couple dumb jokes by the way uh which you know the incentive structure just doesn't seem like i i could see maybe seeing jazz or something like that in a distanced place and it mm-hmm. having like a cool vibe to it i just don't see comedy working as well in that scenario although dave chappelle just put out a pretty yeah, cool so thing saying,
1: I, I saw dave chappelle's special though no, it was really uh, cool but it wasn't really a Com- it wasn't it was really comedy, comedy in it was, the way that it was that amazing. You think about it. it was passionate, yeah. but not quite comedy. So
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. So I mean, I do think things like that yeah. can certainly work, and that's a I mean, kind of exciting for me because it's a little more of what I do. Mm-hmm. I do more like meaningful. There's there's more distance between my punchlines, and they have <laughs> like a little more setup and and um and concepts behind them. Um, but. Um, but, you know, I, I've thought like I have one of my good friends is doing an outdoor show today where I guess people will be encouraged to be. I, you know, I I, I just wasn't sure what the updates were. I'm like, should uh, what I am curious if I can just like have some people get together in a park and all a distance and and have like, uh you know, just just like chat with people, put together some jokes and stuff about everything that's going on on and have like a little it you know it seems like the church thing that's happening i'm like well why aren't they just trying to do more like outdoor stuff with it being summer and and everything rather than people being inside like i i mean i imagine there's churches not sharing the same like wine wine glass and doing communion in the same way but it still seems like um maybe not the best idea, but what, what do you think of it in terms of maybe people starting to try to do outdoor music things and spreading out and distancing and everything? Is it something viable? Is it realistic?
1: I mean, here, you know, Chicago and Illinois, we're starting to move to that, not to festivals, because if you make, no, you know, it's an old fest, all pretty much almost all of our festivals. I think there's a couple of late holders, but I'm sure they'll be canceled as well. Yeah. Uh, cause, no, Chicago we're known for our festivals and things like that because a lot of people congregate so those kind of things have been cancelled but having a venue where I mean if it's outdoors and kind of like kind of how D- Dave Chappelle had his setup, where he's standing on the stage and people are socially distant in chairs that are spread out and he had speakers set up so everyone could hear what he was saying I mean I think that that's reasonable I mean mm-hmm. and especially if everyone has their mask on so I mean the six feet of distance is you know is what we talk about if if two people don't have a mask on. So if everyone has a mask on and keeps their mask on and is also six feet apart, you're not spreading COVID between people if you're in that kind of scenario. So I think that if you could cover your bases in both ways, where you know you're wearing your mask and you're se- separating people, then I think that's a and it's out and is outdoors. I think that all of that together is a safe is a safe bet. Um. Again, I I think that the you know the universal masking is the biggest key for all of this stuff, and I think the biggest issue, that again coming back to what I said earlier is that, is that universal masking really only works if it's if it's universal, and so yeah. all of these things were, I mean because I again I, I'm riding the bus and the train and I'm seeing more and more people coming on without masks, so like now I'm starting taking the Divi bike, which is like the rental bikes to get to work. And like you know, and I'm and I just ordered myself some goggles for when I need to actually have to ride the train to get to where I need to go. And I know I'll look ridiculous, but I I just I don't care because people I are mean, getting really ridiculous out here, and and I understand they're fatigued, but the virus isn't fatigued.
0: But it's more than just fatigue because it's you know I I would have predicted that some people were going to be you know a little reckless with their masks, mm-hmm. not 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 the most conscientious you know maybe not feel like wearing one themselves or worry about their own personal freedom or what you know this is all i i i was alive when the seatbelt seatbelt laws yeah, came into being and and um and so i predicted that the mask shaming that's happening now is just such an epic level of stupid I, I can't believe it. I And and uh, ho- hopefully we'll turn it around because, you know... Shaming just a which simple... way?
1: Shaming people who are wearing them or shaming people who are not wearing them?
0: Shaming people that are wearing them. Oh. Yell, yelling at someone for wearing a mask. <laughs> no, telling no. people that they shouldn't be wearing a mask. Calling someone a coward or whatever for wearing a mask. Like Joe... Ro- I've been on Joe Rogan's podcast before but he's just like mishandled this. Uh, he's the biggest... Thing in podcasting just got some hundred million dollar deal, and he's just this uh, you know bro that uh, acts enlightened or something like that, and he's he's been he's been saying I think he was just like uh, on it's making the rounds saying like people are pussies if they're wearing masks or something like that, and it's just like dude people look up to you like uh, why would you say that to people? Well, but,
1: but- that's but that's like saying that i don't and i never <sighs> understand that because that's like saying uh, that's what i'm a, saying that's a, that's like saying that you're a pussy excuse my language i need to touch, but uh, if we're you, we're quoting
0: him not okay uh, not not this isn't our language if,
1: but if you cross the street without looking yeah you're a wimp like so like why are you why are you looking both ways before you cross the road like just walk
0: yeah like why
1: like that's like only a wimp would do that like why are you waiting till the light is green before you cross the intersection just go they'll stop like it's just it's that same i don't understand that mentality
0: and to have that many listeners and want to like endanger the lives of is just like so it it's uh yeah it's it's been it's been driving me a little bit crazy so it's awesome that that um that you're able to come on and clear a few things up with us i hope that I hope that it becomes a thing like, you know, I actually didn't know several years ago that when like an Asian person was wearing a mask, I, I thought like, oh, is that person like worried about, I didn't, I didn't know it was like a cultural thing. Like if you're sick, you wear a mask so that you don't get others sick. 10, 10, 15 years ago, I didn't know that. And, and when I found that out, I, I was like, what an amazing Lovely, like cultural thing to be doing something for others,
1: and but that actually came out of the first. No, no, was it the the first SARS-CoV? I think that came out of that that first. Ep, that it came out of that first outbreak. It wasn't that wasn't part of like their culture. Like, I mean, in terms of that mass done, wearing mass to that extent before, but they had that. I'm trying to. Now I apologize. I'm gonna make sure it's the right the right outbreak. I think it was either the first SARS-CoV or it was another one before that or another viral outbreak before that. I don't know if you remember, back in like the um, early 2000s. And like a lot of people got, and it ended really quickly, thankfully, but it, it started in like in China and a lot of people got sick really fast and everyone started wearing masks. And then since that one, like that scared them so much that after that, you just saw masks all the time. So since that, one outbreak like that was a major culture shift cuz i think maybe couple people doing it before but cuz of like mass a mass number of people wearing that mask i really noticed it after that first major outbreak that they had
0: yeah i i, I mean and I America hope that our culture goes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I hope that we learn and and change and uh and adapt. We'll see. I have this last thing. I forgot. I promised a Patreon um, member. I was going to sure. ask this question no because because it combines everything that you do. This is uh Bethany had this cool question. Uh, it's interesting. She's um she's dutch
1: mm-hmm.
0: I guess that's my yeah um i w- i want a date again how do i do it safely i heard the dutch government told single people coming out of quarantine to find one sex buddy <laughs> just one they said and i wonder if there might be any guidelines about it i know a lot of people like using tinder these days i taught i actually just had a I had a delightful conversation with a ex of mine the other day who was starting to uh I I'm not uh, currently dating or terribly interested in it right now as I'm trying to pick up the pieces of my business which <laughs> fell apart during all of this but um but uh sh- I I I've been hearing from people do- doing some like socially distancing dating and it it seems like kind of a cool interesting like Maybe once in a lifetime sort of thing. It changes the dynamic and everything else. Have you, uh, 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 you know, in people that you talk with at work or anything? Have 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 you guys discussed like any like updated guidelines with like people maybe taking some extra precautions? When- I mean,
1: not from my not workers my coworkers, but I have seen some interesting reporting that suggested that and that in some ways, um, which is online dating. That people are doing a better job of doing the pre, of really talking to a person.
0: Yeah. So that yeah, yeah. so
1: peop- that you know you still can do match and all those dating sites, but you know taking the time to re- do a lot more talking and video dates to really get to know the person before you meet them in person. Um, so in that sense, I think it might actually have the upswing of maybe establishing actually better relationships. Yeah. Um, when you really get to know the person and know what they're thinking and their values, et cetera before you meet up face to face so that maybe those little things that sometimes you write somebody off of because like maybe they pick their teeth or something, but they're a really good person, the good person part really shines in your eyes so that you ignore the teeth picking part and now you have love, I guess.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
1: But what I tell, but what I, but other strategies I've talked to my patient, one of my patients had, a, was doing a really good job of this, where he was kind of doing, um, a, like you said, kind of similar with the Swedish government saying a sex bubble. So he had, you know, he wants to be, you know, he, he you know, he's a person with, with needs, but he established like one person and they had an agreement that they're just kind of like, you know, friends with benefits right now. Yeah. Um, so that they can, you know, still enjoy that part of their life, but do it in a safe way so that they have an agreed to you bubble. Um, And there's another patient of mine that I talked to about that too, because, you know, he has multiple partners and I've said, you know, well, have you considered just trying to just limit? Like, I think he had about you know, four partners or so. So I was like, no. Ha, ha, think about having a discussion <laughs> with those four part. Well, you know, but having yeah. a discussion with those four partners and seeing if you guys will limit and just being that group and just, just yeah. limiting and just having to be that group. So that way you can have variety, but variety within a very set group. Again, yeah. that only works if everyone follows it and you don't have somebody who decides to... Tip outside the group and tip back yeah. into the group, so that does require some trust involved. Um, I know my
0: my harems are so much to manage. <laughs> Believe me, there's all there's a lot of administrative uh, stuff that bogs everything down.
1: So again, so in some ways, I think the COVID dating strategies, the same dating strategies that you know, the same old-fashioned dating strategies in general. Like you know, really try to get to know somebody as much as possible before you become physical with them and in in this case physical means actually maybe getting to know them before you actually physically meet them face to face um and for those in terms of sex like you know having a small pool like so your doctor always told you when you went to go visit your doctor like you know if you're very active like try to limit the number of partners so same thing just try to limit the number of partners and see if you can have an agreed to partner pool like so that you know either one either only one other person or if it's a group of, like, you know, if you're all hetero, two guys and two girls that you guys like each other, you're attracted, and you decide that you would just swap between, just so each girl just swap just between those two guys, and each guy just swap between those two girls, and just keep it as tight as, as possible, and and with the understanding that you know, don't come knocking on my door for a booty call if you're symptomatic, if you're yeah. having a little bit of fever, scratchy throat, keep that at home. <laughs> <laughs> and no, when it's yeah. been more than 10 days since the onset of symptoms and in more than 72 hours since your last fever feel free to knock on my door again
0: yeah that's a very that's a very reasonable tinder profile to, but <laughs> uh, um i uh but what what about actual pools someone someone asked can you can you go in a public pool is there is there any increased mm. risk of
1: public pools are chlorinated and we know that yeah. chlorine can, can kill the, the the virus so i think again just making sure you're distant from other people that you're not you know sharing towels and things like that but the pool itself is not the problem i think it's i think the problem that they're trying to control now at a lot of like public sites is the interactions that happen around the pool yeah if that makes sense but in the pool if it's chlorinated there's not that's not the problem it's it's the physical interactions outside of it that you know, people kind of hang out at the pool and go talk to their buddies and get close up, and that's the problem.
0: Um, uh, anything that you really wanted to get to that we didn't get a chance to touch on before we wrap up, or uh, I mean, we we had uh, this is we covered a lot. <laughs> this is uh, this has been really awesome. You're a delight, by the way.
1: Oh, thanks. Uh, I can't think of anything.
0: Awesome. Um, well, well, terrific. Well, I very much appreciate your time. Um, awesome. Uh, it, Olamide. It, Olamide.
1: Yes. Oh okay. it. The um, second time around. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, I'm not. I, uh, look, I'm not someone who people have been mispronouncing my name since the day I've been walking this planet, and will pro- mispronounce it to the day I die. Uh, yeah. So I'm not. That's not something I, I, I get bent out of shape about.
0: <laughs> I, I get Sean Mouse all the time, so I I don't either. And and my listeners know that I mispronounce everyone's name, so they're used to this old routine. Um, but, um, I have, a uh, yeah, I, I absolutely really appreciate all of your time and more importantly, everything that you do, all of your work to contribute to making this world a better place. I can't wait for people to see this and get feedback and get more people on to answer follow-up questions and, and, uh, things like that. So, um, yeah, thank you. and thank you and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you next week